Amen. If you have your Bible this evening, if you would find with me Matthew, the 17th chapter, as we are going verse by verse through the book of Matthew, and, uh, and uh, looking at keeping the main things the main things. And there are so many things in life that take our attention. Uh, there are family things that are good that require our attention. There are work things that require our attention. There, there's a lot of things that, um, that have to be done. Uh, we know that there are a lot of things that happen in life that we probably didn't have to do, but yet do uh, get our attention. But uh, keeping the main things the main things is the theme of the sermon series we've been on. And uh, if you remember where we're at, um, we've had this up and down roller coaster for the disciples. And uh, it's not an accident, I think, that we've been looking kind of at the valleys and the mountaintop experiences of the life of David. Um, but in the case of the disciples, uh, their mountaintop and valley experience is not so much because they have ran from God or they have went in the wrong places. Their mountaintop and valley experiences is because they're following Jesus. And you say, well, wait a second, I, I want to follow Jesus from mountaintop to mountaintop. And, uh, and why would Jesus lead me down the mountain into the valley and then back up out of the valley? And that's just the way it goes. And so while David has put himself in these difficult situations on Sunday morning, tonight I want to talk to you about when God takes you from mountaintop to mountaintop and everywhere in between. And so you say, Jake, what does that mean? Well, if you look back with us just very briefly, you'll see that in chapter 15, Jesus was healing great multitudes of people. That would be a spiritual mountaintop. Then, in the next few verses, the disciples question whether or not God can sustain and supply the need for the thousands of people. And so their lack of faith would be a valley. Then, in the very next chapter, he allows them to to understand who he is. And Peter tells him, you are Jesus, the Christ, the, the Son of God. So if you're Peter, that's a mountaintop moment. Understanding and following who God is. You go on there, though, and in the very next few verses, Jesus says, I'm going to die on a cross. I'm going to be giving up my life. And Peter says, no, you're not, Lord. And so the very same mountaintop moment of, I know who you are, is... A few moments later, hearing from Jesus, get behind me, Satan. I don't know if you've ever used that on your spouse or someone in your life, but it doesn't go very well when you call someone, get behind me, Satan. But yet that would have been a valley moment for Peter. But yet, can you imagine hearing that? And so then we see in verse 24 through the end of chapter 16 that Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross. And he tells them that following Jesus means you've got to forsake everything else. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot following Jesus. It's an all or nothing thing. And so you can imagine that they're thinking, well, Jesus is going to die. We're going to have to give up everything. That's a valley moment. But then in the beginning of chapter 17, Jesus takes three of the disciples up on the mount. And they get to see the transfiguration and, and how amazing and how powerful that would have been. And then as they're coming down, and we looked last week, there's a father with a demon-possessed son. And the disciples could not heal him, could not deliver him. 
And so this father we looked at last week is waiting for Jesus. And Jesus heals the boy. And the disciples, as you know, this is a low moment. They're thinking, why couldn't we heal this child? But yet in all of these things, these men are not in valleys and mountains because they have ran from God. It is because they have followed him. And I want you to see this tonight because so many times we blame the valleys of our life on the stupidity of ourselves. Well, you know, I was living in sin and this happened and that was a valley. But even after you are a Christian tonight, you need to know something that you can be following Jesus obediently. You can be doing all the things that God has asked you to do, but yet for whatever purpose he has in your life, he could be leading you through a valley, leading you through a difficult time. And so tonight, if you would uh, pray with me, and I want to just go right to God's word. Father, tonight I pray for each individual that is in this place. Lord, I do not know hearts, but you do. So, Father, to that Christian that is really struggling in their faith tonight, pray that you would be speaking and convicting them. Father, to that person that's here tonight that doesn't really know you as their Lord and Savior, that tonight, Lord, you would begin to convict and deal with them. Father, to the saint that is serving you faithfully and cannot imagine being in a valley, Lord, that you would begin to prepare them for whatever comes next. Father, for that person that feels like they're drowning in the midst of difficulty and hardship, Lord, today that you would remind them that you will never leave them nor forsake them. So, Father, I pray tonight that you'd forgive me, Lord, because I'm a sinful man. I pray, Lord, that you would work and move in this place tonight for your glory and your glory alone. So, Lord, tonight I thank you for what you're going to do, and I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. And so if you're taking notes tonight, and I really do hope that you will, the first thing is this. If you're going to keep the main things, the main things, you have to know and understand that committing to Jesus matters. We need to understand that committing to Jesus matters. We live in a day and age when commitment is a foreign concept. People don't want to commit at work. People don't want to commit in their marriages. People don't want to commit at church. Literally, the only thing they want to commit to is something that matters to them, that they enjoy. And so tonight I want you to see here in verses 22 and 23 as Jesus begins to teach them again. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him And the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And so Jesus, after delivering this demon-possessed boy, and we looked last week at the Father and, and the people, that would be an amazing moment to be a disciple. Jesus just delivered this boy who was throwing his body into the fire, throwing his body into these water and, and trying to drown himself. Jesus delivered him. We're moving on now. We're back on top of the game. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, they ain't got nothing to say about Jesus. Jesus is working and moving, and and we're following right along. And the very next thing he does, it's like throwing cold water on him. You do remember that I'm going to die. Oh, not this again. But you notice he also says that he will be betrayed by someone. Do you think in this moment that they ever dreamed that it could be them? I'm guessing most of them, like us, think, well, I would never disown Jesus. 
I would never deny Jesus. I would never turn on Jesus. But it says there, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Earlier, if you remember, when he was talking about this in the 17th, 16th chapter, he did not say that, if you remember. He said in verse 21, From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. But now he is adding to that. He says, I'm going to die earlier, but now he says, someone's going to betray me. I mean, how much worse news can you get other than the person you've followed and the person you love and the person you've trusted and the person you've forsaken everything says, I'm going to die. But then he shares, oh, and by the way, someone's going to betray me. I'm not going willingly just to walk up and say, here I am. No, someone is going to betray me. I mean, that would just deflate you, right? I mean, I can't imagine what that would have been like. And so from just this mountaintop moment of seeing Jesus work, he tells them, I'm going to die and someone's going to betray me. Well, I'm not a very smart man, as you mostly know, after hearing me read the difficult words in the Bible on a regular basis. You know, they probably thought it had to be one of them, though. The scribes couldn't betray him. They hated him. Betrayal is something that comes from someone that is supposed to what? Love you. It's not betrayal when your enemy is after you. That's just expected. But betrayal is something that comes from people that you are supposed to trust and care for. I want you to see this word here at the very end of chapter 23. And it says they were exceedingly sorrowful. And this word here means an extreme, deep, emotional pain. It is this word that means a sadness that leads to depression. When the disciples heard this, every bit of hope and joy in them was gone. He is trying to depict them as this is as low as they had ever been following Jesus. As low as they were. As more as emotional as they were. It even can sometimes be used as a pain that is synonymous with childbirth. Something that hurts so bad and is so difficult. That is the word to describe what they were going through. Not only were they sad and discouraged, but yet it hurt them with such great pain. You say, well, why is Jesus continuing to allow them to experience the victories and the valleys? And this is why, I believe. Because most of us want the blessings of God. We want the favor of God. But yet it is really in the moments where the blessing and the favor of God is gone that your faith is something that you find out whether it's real or not. It's when you lose a loved one that you didn't think that you could live without and yet your faith is still in the hope of Jesus that your faith is real. In the moment when the doctor tells you that there is nothing more than we can do it's time for you to go home and make plans that you still trust and have faith that God is God in the good moments everyone believes when your wealth is up when attendance is up when giving is up when when the blessings of life are up it's easy when serving Jesus costs nothing it's easy to follow him 
Listen to what Ephesians, the fourth chapter says, starting in verse 25. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbors. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer. But rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give who has need. Let not corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And that word for grieve is the same word that is used about what the apostles experienced. And I don't want you to miss this tonight. Because as a Christian who has the Holy Spirit living in you, when you are living out the life that this verse is telling us not to, it causes pain to the Holy Spirit. It saddens the Holy Spirit. You say, what do you mean it saddens him? I don't understand all that, but it's the same word used there and here. And so do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. He is saying when Jesus becomes the Lord and Savior of your life and the Holy Spirit takes residence in you, everything changes. Everything is going to change in the way you talk, in the way you walk, in the way you think, in the way you live. Why? Because it cost Jesus his life. It cost Jesus him shedding his blood for your sin and mine. And he warns us right in the middle of that. Friends, I believe this with all my heart. And I, I believe that when God saves you, he saves you. You don't have to be saved multiple times. You don't have to be baptized multiple times. You're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. I believe when you repent of your sins and call upon the name of the Lord, the very Spirit of God comes to live within you. He seals you and keeps you until the day that he takes you to heaven. I believe that. I believe it 100%. And there is no way, no thing, no how that can change what I believe the Bible teaches. And friends, even though God will never throw you away, and even though God will never lose you, what it says here in this text in Ephesians, that you can sadden God. It breaks God's heart when his people run from him and sin against him. You say, oh, Jake, God's perfect. He doesn't have emotion like we have emotion. I understand that. But the same word is used here. And if the Bible is used a word in one place and uses it multiple other times, then it means what it means. And so tonight, as a Christian, you need to know something. Your sin breaks the heart of God even if you're forgiven. And so as a Christian, it affects how I live. I don't want to hurt the people I love. I don't want to cause pain and suffering to those that I love. But yet it says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And so tonight, my challenge to you is if you were here, there's probably a reason you're here tonight. And it's probably because you love Jesus. I mean, there's lots of good things on television you could have watched tonight, I'm sure. A lot of other places you could have been. But for some reason, God had you here. And tonight, I pray that it is because you know that following Jesus matters. 
that committing to him is something of great importance. But the second thing I want to show you tonight is we need to understand that committing to Jesus matters. But the second thing we see here is we need to understand how to treat unbelievers. So he tells them that our commitment matters. But look what it says in verses 24 through 27. When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? Now don't miss this. This is not the civil tax. This is the temple tax. This is the Old Testament taxes for the Old Testament law. Yes. In verse 25, he said, he said yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from their strangers? Peter said to him, from strangers. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Nevertheless, we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. He asked Peter, are you free from the Old Testament law? Has it been fulfilled through Jesus? And he says that through taxes. Does the stranger pay or the son pay? He says the stranger. Jesus is teaching here that even though you have been set free, you should not use your freedom to cause others to stumble. There used to be a day and age when our churches taught things like this. You know what? It might not be sin. But it might cause someone else to stumble. And as a Christian who loves lost people, I would never want to cause someone to stumble. So I will what? Avoid the appearance of evil. Those days are gone. You stand up here and preach a sermon about avoiding alcohol, avoiding places like casinos and, and, uh, and all these places, and they'll look up to you and say, you're a legalist. Oh, you hard shell uh, fundamentalist, you hate everybody and judge everyone. No, that's not it at all. It's an issue of if it could be wrong, and it might be appearance of wrong, I love lost people enough, even though I'm free, that I'm not going to do it for them. You say, well, Jake, that's not in the Bible. That's exactly what Jesus just taught. He literally told them, Peter, you don't have to legally pay that tax. But I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to show you a miracle that proves that this is how it should be done. And he says, go out there and get a fish and go fishing. So if you want to know if fishing is biblical, here apparently it is, all right? Jesus says, go. And some of you said, amen. <laughs> and there is literally the tax that he needed in the mouth of the fish. And he says, now go pay it. You see, friends, I want you to know something tonight. I believe there will be a lot of people in heaven that don't agree with us on a lot of things. A lot of things that might be gray areas, and we shouldn't fight about as Christians. But I believe this tonight. If you really love lost people, and it could be used to cause others to stumble, God's children should flee from the appearance of evil. Knowing that there will be people who we will cause to stumble. You say, Jake, I just don't believe that. Well, good. I'm going to mention one other thing to you. In the Old Testament, there is a passage of Scripture in the book of Ezekiel. 
and it is talking about a watchman on the wall defending a city. And the Bible says if an enemy comes and the watchman warns the people in the city and they do not listen and they are killed, the blood is on whose hands? Theirs. Now don't miss this. But if that watchman who watches the wall does not warn them when the enemy comes, the blood is on whose hands? The watchman. The sin of omission from what you should do will cause others to stumble, will have effect on other people. If omitting the warning causes people to suffer consequences, how much more does contributing to the fall? Don't miss that tonight. We do not serve God out of legalism. And I, leave, I believe a Christian is free and free indeed. But friends, never use that freedom to destroy the hope of someone else. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 1, we see the Apostle Paul's heart for lost people. Tonight you say, Jake, I don't care about lost people. Then I want to encourage you tonight to get saved. Verse 1, it says, Therefore I exert, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all men. You say, well, Jake, I don't like that man. Well, get over it, buttercup. You say, Jake, I don't like that race of people or ethnicity of people. That's why racism is a sin. I believe critical race theory is a sin as well, but racism is a sin. Because Paul says you pray for all men. Yellow, black, white, it doesn't matter. Right here. For kings and all those who are in authority. That's a verse I struggle with sometimes. That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I want to stop right there because I'm not a real smart man and you know that. But if the Apostle Paul just said, pray for all men, and he, and he meant all in that first one, right? When he comes down to the next verse, why would he change the meaning of all? Doesn't make any sense. He should have said, why don't you pray for some men? But he says, pray for all men. But why would he pray for all men? Because he says there in that verse that God desires all men. Now, if 3 plus 1 equals 4, and a few lines later you have 1 plus 3, it equals what? 4. It's the same thing. And so if Paul is saying in the beginning of this verse, pray for all, and a chapter, verse later he says all, and in verse 3 he says all, it's the common theme of the text. It's the purpose of what we're looking at. And so in verse 4 it says, Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. Who gave himself a ransom for... So four times in five verses the same word is used. It's not taking it out of context when you say that God wants all men to be saved. This entire section of Scripture is repeating it over and over and over and over again, again because God knows our heart is to be bigoted. It is our flesh to hate people. It is our flesh that plays favoritism. 
It's our flesh that gives some groups of people more value than others. But yet in this verse, he keeps saying what? I want you to pray for all people. I want it to be a peaceable life in all godliness. It's good that all men be saved. That Jesus is a ransom for all men. And he goes on and says in verse 7, For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth. And even if he thinks, you know what, you guys might not get it, okay? Even though I have repeated myself over and over and over and over again, I want to finish this with this. I'm telling you the truth. Paul wants you to get this. Paul wants me to get this. Because why? Friends, if you grow up in a rural community like we do, and the population of your high school in my senior class was about 119 Caucasians, two maybe Hispanics, and zero African Americans. If you're not careful, you can be pretty prejudiced. And what God says is you can take that prejudice and you can repent. Or on the other side of that, if you're raised in a high school with 7,000 people in your class, and almost all of them are of the same ethnicity of you and race of you. And you are living that way. It is a good tendency that you will probably hate people that don't look the same color of you. And what Jesus says is, you got to get rid of that too. Because why? Jesus died for all. Over and over again. And the third and final thing tonight is I'm running short on time and get myself in trouble if I keep going. And point three is this. Not only do we need to understand that a commitment to Jesus matters, not only do we need to understand how to treat unbelievers, we need to understand how to treat other believers. Other believers. Look what it says here in verse 18. Chapter 18, excuse me. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as a little child, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. You see, he's talking now to believers. In chapter 18, he is going to talk about believers over and over again. Uh, the sinning member, the, the, the lost sibling. Over and over again in chapter 18, it's all talking about saved people. Save people who wander, save people who struggle, uh, save people who fall, all of these things. And it's so important tonight because he gives us the blueprint of what it looks like to love other people. Jesus did not say that you will be known by how many conservative candidates you support in politics. Jesus didn't say you will be known by how many mission projects you complete. Jesus didn't say you will be known by how many wonderful sermons you preach. Somebody can say amen to that, brother preacher. He said, you will be known by how you love one another. 
I have been a Baptist my whole life. I started out generally Baptist and then saw the light, thank the Lord. But that's a joke. That's a joke. But I've been a Baptist my whole life. Now, I've not been alive as long as some of you, so you've been a Baptist a whole lot longer. And I can tell you I have met some of the finest, most loving Christian people I have ever seen in churches. But I have also met some of the meanest, ornriest, old snakes that I have ever seen. But what Jesus says here is if you want to be great, and if you want to be used by God, you have to be humble. You have to have childlike faith. What is childlike faith? Childlike faith is just believing that Jesus is who he said he is. It's believing that you are a sinner. It's not hard to tell a child that they've done something wrong. Did you steal that? Mm -mm. Mm -mm. You sure you didn't steal that? Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Well, then why is there gum in your hair? Mm -mm. That's how kids are. In our house, it's a fight. She did it. No, she did it. Well, then I'll just spank both of you. It doesn't change anything, usually. But if you sit a child down and really explain to them and say, should you have done that? No. Friends, tonight I want you to know something. That we have lost the humility to love Jesus as a small child. We are living in a country that has become prideful and arrogant. We have more wealth than at any time in human history in our country. We have more conveniences than at ever time in human history. We've got more of everything and then some. But yet what we lack is simple faith. I read an old preacher said this a long time ago. He said, my grandpa was junior high educated. Said he never wore anything but a pair of bib overalls. Never got off his 120-acre farm. Never had indoor plumbing. Never had electricity. But what he did have was a childlike faith that the Bible was the Word of God. That Jesus really was who he said he was. And even though he didn't have the great things that we now have, he had something much more valuable. Faith like a child. And friends, tonight, you and I need to know something, that God will accept us if we will come. But it has to come that way. Lord, I have nothing to offer. Lord, I have nothing good in me. You might have more letters behind your name, VCR, MP3, DVD, PhD, whatever it is. But none of it impresses God. You might have the biggest house in McLeansboro. You might have the fanciest car. You might have more of everything and some. But none of it impresses Jesus. He says, if you want to be great. In verse 4 it says, therefore, whoever humbles himself as a little child. There's something amazing about little children. They're wonderful until they grow up and become teenagers. Isn't that right? I don't know, I live with six females, but I have a feeling I'm going to find out. Little children are wonderful because in your, their eyes, you are the most important person in the whole world. I can tell you when I go home tonight, I'll have a little two-year-old that will say, I miss you, Daddy, I miss you. And it will bless my soul. 
But if I was to ask that two-year-old to go out and get a job and provide for herself, she could not do it. Why? Because she is not able. She depends on us for everything. Her food, her clothing, her love, everything. We provide it for her. I have a four-year-old. I will hear the same thing from her, but in a little bit better English. I missed you, Daddy. I missed you. And I could ask her to go out and get a job just like I could the two-year-old. And you know what? There are more things that she can do than the two-year-old, but she still is not able to make enough money to earn a living. She's still not able to balance a checkbook. She's still not able to answer a phone and carry on a real conversation because she's too busy trying to play the games on that phone. I have a five-year-old who when I get home tonight, she will say the same thing. I missed you, Daddy. And you know what? She speaks a little bit better English. She can do a little bit more things. But if I was to ask her, you need to go out and get a job and provide for your own wealth and provide for your own clothing and provide for your own food. She could not do that. You say, Jake, we get where you're going with that. Well, I got more kids and I'm not done yet, so we're going to go on. <laughs> Two-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old. Okay, six-year-old. I have a six-year-old who is even in kindergarten. She can do many things, and she, can, she is very intelligent, and, and, and she's got really something going for her. She looks more like her mother than any other child that we have from the old pictures. But I can tell you that when I get home, she won't say I miss you as much as the little ones, but she will say it. But she is still too little to go out and get a job and to provide for herself and to go to work and to drive a car. She's still too little. She depends on us. Then I have an eight-year-old who's just a little bit more smart and just a little bit more intelligent and a whole lot more ornery than any other child that I have in a good way. And I probably won't get I missed you, Daddy, when I get home, but she'll at least wave at me. But if I was to tell her I need you to get a job and go to work and provide for yourself, she could not. She's just too little. And we're almost done, thank the Lord. The oldest one is 10. She's almost 11 years old, and she is one sharp cookie. I try to preach about my kids a lot because you know them all and, and you know, it is what it is. But she is pretty intelligent. I could tell her, hey, I need you to get a job and she could babysit. She could do it. She won't babysit our kids, but she could babysit someone else's for money. She would go across the street and, and babysit for the Hamptons anytime, but not us. I could even tell her, dear, I want you to fold clothes and I want you to help your mother and I, I want you to do all these things and she can't. But if I still said, dear, I need you to drive to Dollar General and get me some stuff from the store, she might try, but she cannot. She still depends on us. And I said all of that because, friends, you cannot do anything on your own that matters outside of Jesus. And it means coming to him saying, Lord, I am a sinner. Lord, I might be good at speaking. I might have money. I might have a lot of things in this life that are good. But I don't have what matters the most. And that's a relationship with him. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Tonight, friends, if you want to be right with God, it starts with humility. You say, Jake, I'm already saved. And, uh, and so this doesn't apply to me. You are mistaken. Humility is something that you ought to be living out every day. And listen to what 2 Peter chapter 1 says, verses 5 through 9. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, 
to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. He says, after you are saved, staying humble will allow you to be used by God. Allow for him to grow you in your faith. Allow you to stretch you in your faith. What starts as knowledge then becomes self-control. That self-control can then be used by God to bring godliness. That godliness can turn into love for one another. It's something that builds upon itself. You don't just get saved and immediately understand how to love other people. It's something God does in you, teaches you, trains you. And the thing about being trained and taught is you have to be willing to be trained and taught. There are a lot of educators in this room, teachers, teacher's aides, um, and they can tell you there are some students that want to learn. Whether it's a fear of their parents for getting a bad grade or it's a desire to succeed on their own, they are going to listen. They're going to learn. They're going to apply. And there are other kids, it don't matter what you threaten them with, what you take from them, what you try to do, they are not going to listen or learn. It's just the way it is. And friends, it is the same way as a believer. God saved you and God will keep you. But what he accomplishes through you will be when you say, Lord, here I am. I want you to use everything that I have for your glory. Every inch of talent, every inch of ability, Lord, everything you give me is yours to use. And friends, if you can have that kind of faith, God will use you in a mighty way. Or you can say, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, and I don't want anything other than that. And friends, that will be a miserable serving of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so my challenge to you tonight as a church is will you be humble and say, Lord, here I am. Whatever you want of us, whatever you ask of us, here we are. Father, I thank you so much for your word tonight, Lord. And I know as always I, I stumble and I stutter and Lord, I, I, I confuse things. But tonight, Lord, I pray that your word has been preached. Lord, I pray that your spirit would begin to work tonight. Not because of my elegant words or creative examples, Lord, but by the power of your spirit. Tonight, Lord, first and foremost, I pray for the lost person that's in this place today. The person who thinks they're right with you, who has went through all the steps, but here is tonight, Lord, realizing they don't have a relationship with you. Tonight, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict them. Not out of condemnation, but out of love. That you loved them and died on the cross for them. Father, tonight I pray that your Holy Spirit would show them of their need to be saved and the Lord, that they would repent and call upon you. Lord, for the Christian that's here today, Lord, that's most of this crowd, I pray, Lord, that you'd help them to have a passion to reach lost people. Lord, help them to no longer see people as the enemy, but, Lord, as a child that you are willing to redeem. Help us, Lord, to live in a way that shows them love and compassion and mercy and also godliness. Father, tonight I pray, Lord, that you'd help us as a church to love one another. Not just in word, not just when people are looking, 
But Lord, in every situation that we would love each other like you love us. And so tonight, Lord, I just pray that you would work and move for your glory. And I ask it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Today, as you have been listening to this sermon, maybe you have been thinking, the Holy Spirit's been working, that I'd like to know more about Jesus. I'm not sure if I've ever been saved. Please reach out and contact us. We would love to share the gospel with you, pray with you with whatever's going on in your life. Or maybe you are a believer, but yet you've got some spiritual battles that you've just not been able to conquer. We'd love to join you in that battle. So please, reach out to us. We would love and are waiting to hear from you. May God richly bless you in Jesus' name.